penalty. Parts of California are in for a drenching, but not in time to prevent new restrictions. California's governor has extended a drought emergency to cover the entire state now. This man says the situation is severe at Lake Tahoe. Water levels down, dried up, small little riverbeds that normally would be quite flowing. CBS News meteorologist David Parkinson says some storms this week are forecast to bring up to seven inches of rain to parts of California. This is a really impressive storm system for this early in the season, and we just hope there will be more of them in order to get our way out of this drought. Steve Kathan, CBS News. Employees at Netflix are walking off their jobs today to protest Dave Chappelle's comedy special and the company's response to their demands that be removed from the platform. I am not saying that to say that trans women aren't women. CEO Ted Sarandos now says he, quote, screwed up in his defense of the closer, explaining it was highly popular and Netflix is committed to creative freedom. Dow Futures down 17. This is CBS News. If you're checking for fever, the leading sign of COVID-19, beware of dangerously inaccurate non-contact thermometers. Instead, learn about Exergen at Exergen.com. This is a metaphor for your business's journey. Sometimes it feels like you're going 100 miles an hour, barely keeping up. But to cruise through challenges, you need someone who's right there with you. That's what Dell Technologies Advisors do. They have the Windows PCs and tech advice you need to get past whatever's in front of you and get where you want to go. Call an advisor today at 877-ASK-DELL. That's 877-ASK-DELL. A start to a simpler experience with Windows 11 Pro. With just one spray of Microband 24, your hard surfaces are sanitized for up to 24 hours. Touch after touch after touch. So six hours from now? Still sanitized. 12 hours? Yep. 18 hours. We're really doing this. 24 hours. When used as directed, one spray of Microband keeps killing 99.9% .9 of bacteria touch after touch for, yeah, up to 24 hours. Wow. Microband 24, the sanitizer four out of five doctors would use in their own homes. So why aren't you? One of Las Vegas' most popular shows isn't returning just yet. Celine Dion has delayed her Vegas comeback indefinitely due to muscle spasms. A statement on her website says the spasms are severe and persistent, and she's undergoing medical treatment to get them under control. Dion's first round of shows at Resorts World was supposed to start next month, with a second round in January. The singer says she's heartbroken she won't be able to do them. Ticket holders will get automatic refunds. As for her world tour, so far, that's still on for March. Monica Ricks, CBS News. Some of Hollywood's A-listers have been exposed to COVID. Five years ago, Thanos erased half of the population of the universe. Salma Hayek, Angelina Jolie, Gemma Chan, and director Chloe Zhao in isolation after attending Monday night's Eternals premiere. They had to bow out of a Women in Hollywood celebration last night. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. I'm CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. Dealing with car repairs can feel like a lose-lose situation. You lose your money and your time. And if you don't have the right coverage, just one repair could bleed you dry. If you call CarShield, you won't be worried about expensive repairs anymore. CarShield administrators handle the paperwork and expensive payments, so you don't have to. It's a win-win. Seriously, CarShield could save you thousands. You get to pick your favorite mechanic to do the work, and CarShield administrators take care of the rest. It's like they're your own personal team of auto repair problem solvers. Plans from CarShield even provide roadside assistance, rental coverage, and trip reimbursement, all at no additional charge. Whether your car has 5,000 miles or 150,000 miles, CarShield has monthly coverage options to fit your budget. Get coverage today and see why CarShield cars go farther. Visit carshield.com slash jill to save 10%. That's carshield.com slash Jill. A deductible may apply. I'm Malcolm. I'm a commercial cash management specialist, but I'm also a leader and a musician. At Park National Bank, we're more than our job titles, and you're more than an account number. You get personal attention and direct access to a caring, compassionate banker who respects and responds to your needs and goals. Find Malcolm or a banker near you at parknationalbank.com. Park National Bank where you mean more. Member FDIC, parknationalbank.com. Hey, it's Boots. We'll talk tires, NASCAR, and take plenty of your calls. Join us. That's AutoSmarts Friday afternoon at 106 on 970 WATH and 97.1 FM.
This is Education Matters with Ohio Education Association President Scott Tomorrow. Our local school board leaders have big jobs making big decisions for our students, educators, and communities. When you head to the polls on November 2nd, make sure you're electing school board candidates who are looking at the big picture for your district, not parroting radical national agendas to score cheap political points. Education Matters, brought to you by the Ohio Education Association. Hello, I'm Kelly Cook, Executive Director of My Sister's Place. I'm asking for your support for the mental health levy. The levy supports survivors of family violence through emergency shelter, counseling, court advocacy, and transitional housing. Let's make sure all of our neighbors have what they need to be safe from abuse. Vote for the Mental Health and Addiction Services Levy. The levy funds more than 50 local community programs and will not raise your taxes. Paid for by the 317 Board Levy Renewal Committee. Do you want to make improvements to your business or facility and don't know where to begin? Let us, VSWC Architects, assist you to make your building into something unique and special. We design to provide you with an efficient facility, enhanced curb appeal, and the best value for your money. Call me, Trent DeBruin, in Athens, Ohio, at 740-541-9725. Difficulties with everyday tasks, words and numbers, confusion in familiar environments, memory loss, and changes in behavior. These are all signs of dementia. Athens County Cares wants to create a dementia-inclusive Athens County and empower adults living with cognitive decline through a holistic program which safeguards their dignity and independence while improving their and their caregivers' quality of life. Pick up the phone and call 740-594-3535 or visit AthensCountyCares.org to learn more. Hey there, what are you doing today? Would whatever it is be easier with faster, more reliable home internet? If you said yes, we have good news. Plus, you could save up to $150. Viasat offers high-speed satellite internet wherever you live, even if cable providers don't go there. So you can get online today and tomorrow. Go to Viasat.com slash connect now and save up to $150 on select home plans. That's V-I-A-S-A-T dot com slash connect now minimum 24 month service term service is not available in all areas see viasat.com for additional terms and conditions in our 72nd year of serving southeast ohio am 970 and 97.1 fm ah look at that glorious sunshine out there a beautiful morning, 45 degrees though, just a, a bit chilly really, at least for my liking. Headed to 74 are high. Hey, we got a special edition. Steve Snodgrass is our guest this morning via telephone. And... I don't know, have you folks ever had the opportunity to talk to a family member that you've never met? Well, that's kind of what this is like. And I hope you get a sense of it as we get going here. So uh, anyway, let me get all my switches just right in. Steve Snodgrass, good morning. Good morning to you, David. How are you? Welcome, welcome. Uh, you know, this has been a really funny, interesting, not, not funny, but it's just been a cool thing, what's happened over the last um, three or four weeks. What happened, folks, was uh, at some point I looked down at my cell phone and I noticed that it said someone had called me and it even named the person Lloyd Snodgrass. And I go, how can that be? Um, as a child, that name was so uh, often used in my home. My dad knew your dad. And um, they, they, they both were sales and marketing experts. And, well, anyway, I'm going to let you tell a story a little bit. Now, so anyway, so I, I called back this number, talked to your dad. We had, a, I think, a 31-minute conversation. It was wonderful. And then he told me he wanted to put his son in touch with me and all of that. And 
We just had a lot of fun, haven't we? Yeah, it has really been very unique and special to reconnect because uh, my dad got to know your dad because he was invited to be a speaker at MFA Insurance Agency to uh, help all the insurance personnel learn the art of salesmanship. Right. And um, my dad was a member of that company, and despite being from one of the uh, poorest rural counties, he was the uh, the number two sales, one of the top salespeople, and that intrigued your dad. The fact that uh, a man could come from a background where uh, it was the most rural, poor area, yet he was one of the leading salespeople. And, and we and should so, mention this is in Missouri, right? This is in uh, a small town called Donovan, Missouri. The meeting was in Poplar Bluff, Missouri. Yeah, and. Uh, that's where they first linked up, and your dad uh, went to meet my dad, introduced himself during lunch, patted him on the back and said, how you doing, champ? And then from then on, it was about a, uh, you know, that, that relationship began in the 1950s and continued on for decades. Yes. So it, it was a special time, and, and uh, my dad had invited your dad to come to donathan to come fishing at a rather famous river called current river at the time and your dad actually took him up on the offer and uh from there they just became fast friends that lasted for for a long long time and my dad just turned 93 years old and we were just talking about he always mentions your dad because i'm in a i've gone off into a completely different thing from surgery uh, and uh, he had talked about salesmanship and mentioned your dad so many times. And he said, hey, I wonder if uh, if Fred's son is doing anything in radio. Why don't you look him up on the Internet? Sure. See if see if he can connect. And, and uh, sure as the world, I found you and found a phone number. And my dad said, well, I'm going to give him a call, and let's see if we can reconnect. Three weeks ago, and we've been uh, communicating a lot since, and I like it. It's um, you, you, you said something, but I'm not sure people understood or that you made it clear enough. You yourself are a surgeon. You went to school. Your fascination was with medicine and all of that. And um, so, you know, that's a lot different than being in the sales field, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things where I think I, you, you just know that you wanted to, to do that. I, I've known from a long time that I wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, my, I hung out with, uh, with surgeons and ER doctors since age 14. Wow. And things were a lot different back then. You could, you know, you were actually allowed access into places where yes. you just couldn't do that now. But, I remember, you know, I worked in the operating room as a scrub tech or surgical technician uh, before I went to medical school and then got to hang around surgeons here in Kentucky. I was working at Missouri Baptist Hospital in St. Louis at the time, and I came back to school and college and was working with a surgeon here in Kentucky, and he he did a gallbladder operation. And he said, well, did that look very hard to you? And I said, well, really, it didn't. And he said, well, I'll let you do the next one. So mm-hmm. at age 18, I performed my first cholecystectomy. Wow. So I don't think <laughs> I don't think you could get by with that these days. No, no, I doubt it. But um, on the other hand, you know, the, the um, what do you call it? Uh, apprenticing concept is still important to medicine. And, um, you know, you can't just walk in there and out of a book uh, perform it. You have to have some hands-on, don't you? Oh yeah, it's it's uh, it's one of those things where I knew that that surgery was for me, and you know, surgeons have different kinds of personalities. I think everybody does, but you know, that's why they have so many different specialties. You get one that that fits you the best, and I've been one of those people where. Uh, I've seen probably the worst of the worst, but it really never bothered me. And 
and one of my mentors in in St. Louis was a surgeon named Dr. Lerwick, and I remember he and I were working together on a on a perforated, essentially a ruptured abdominal aortic aneurysm, and it's a it's a very highly stressful emergency operation. And I remember when when uh, he cut the abdomen open, uh, the blood was under so much tension it hit the operating room lights, mm. and it, it was quite a sight and he looked at me and he said one thing i always want you to remember in life he said never panic unless it's your own blood and i thought that was just such a great statement because panic really never serves anyone any good right right well um let me um talk about your dad a little bit uh in the accomplishments he had in why do you think he held my dad in such high esteem? I think one of the reasons was because there was an instant first, there's an instant just likability mm-hmm. about your dad. And obviously he was an incredible communicator. And that that in itself is a talent that we certainly don't see as much today because so much is technology driven you could have a room full of people instead of talking to each other they're looking at their cell phones Mm -hmm. and the thing about your dad was he was a phenomenal communicator and then i think basically it got down to uh both men uh, held such high esteem for honesty and integrity so i think they they shared that bond and they knew that Whatever they were selling, they they had to believe in it, and they had to believe that it was going to do somebody some good. And so I think that was at the very heart and the foundation of the relationship. As a child, I had um, evidently my dad had more than one trip to Donovan, Missouri, because I remember going once and being on that boat on the current river and how beautiful it was down there, and uh, having a dinner at your parents' home and that sort of thing. It was just a a wonderful experience. And um, I should do it again sometime. That current river was really special. Why why has it caught so much attention, do you think? Well, I think it's just just so scenic. Yeah. And... and, uh, you know, people just come from there at the foot of the Ozarks, and it's just this beautiful, clear water and the mountains all around. It's just a beautiful place. And and it reminds me, the, the first time that I met your dad, uh, we were we were fishing, and, and uh, you know, I was just a little kid, probably seven or eight years old, something like that. And, and uh, I threw out what was the most beautiful cast you've ever seen in your life. I felt like, man, I really nailed that one. Uh-huh. But the problem was I hooked uh, into this hornet's nest that uh-huh. was overhanging on a tree branch. And we're just kind of going like, well, what do you do with that? And your dad said like, well, I don't know what everybody else is going to do, but I'm jumping out of the water. Into the water. <laughs> and the guy said, no, don't do that. What we'll do is we'll turn off the motor because that will attract the hornets. We'll get far away, and then we'll jerk the line. Yeah, yeah. And and your dad said, like, well, you better make sure it's real far away because you know that's a big hornet's nest. <laughs> and we got we got far away and jerked that line, and it was almost cartoonish. Those it looked like a feather pillow had burst open. These hornets were flying around everywhere, and thankfully we were a long way away. But it, I'll never forget doing that though because. Who would think you would hook a hornet's nest? But I did. But it was just—it's one of the first memories I had of your dad because he was like in his uh, safari outfit and had on like a safari helmet and everything. He was—he was ready to go. And so it was just—it was just a fun outing for the for all of us. And uh, and that's that's my first memory of your dad. For many years, folks, if you've been listening to this station for any length of time. Well, particularly far back. Um, we had a daily commentary. 
and uh, it was uh, typically voiced, um, I would say 99.9% of the time, it was voiced by my father, Fred Palmer. And it was run in, uh, I want to say, 7.30, 12.30, and 4.30 each day. And each day was a different commentary. And he always ended it with, just thought you'd like to know. You know, yesterday they played one on the station, and, and it's been years since we, we're, we're trying to. We had them somewhere in the building, hundreds of them, maybe even thousands of them, because he did them for many years. We have master recordings somewhere. We're just trying to find them and bring it back and put it on the air. But yesterday, someone found one in our computer system and aired it. It was so cool. And it was talking about the fact that uh, my sister Carol... Okay, so during World War I, my dad wanted to go and enlist. And they said, no, we'd rather have you run WCKY here in Cincinnati. Because the station is so popular at different times of the day overseas with our military people. The people fighting. And then when uh, World War II came along, he went to enlist, and they said, no, um, you're, you're just a mite bit too old. But anyway, somewhere along the way, my sister Carol, when he came home, she said, I want to put my dog in the service. And I think the dog's name was... Barticus or something like that. Barkus, Barkus, that's what it was. And so they that actually happened. And he was telling the story again yesterday on this recording of years ago about how all the school kids came to see Barkus off to training. And then maybe a year or two later when Barkus was untrained and brought back to the, its owner how the school let out to welcome him home and all of that. You know, just just cool stories. And his commentaries, I've got to find those. We, we After hearing that yesterday, we put a new, um, what would you put it, emphasis on trying to find those. You know, I'm going to mention a few names. Dale Carnegie, Zig Ziglar, Kenneth McFarland. Now, these are all names of basically famous people who spoke to groups and conventions and businesses and workforces about how to do a better job, particularly in the area of sales and marketing. And then there's one more name I'm going to mention, and that is Fred Palmer. He was among that group. And all of these fellas, these well-known names, were great friends of his. Well, let's talk about you a little bit, Steve. So this medical thing, it was fascinating to you from the age of 14, right? Yeah, it was. And, and uh, I ended up going to, um, to medical school at the University of Kentucky in Lexington and then trained in surgery in South Carolina. Uh, finishing my chief residency year in 1989 and uh, started private practice in uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, where I was raised. Yes. And I uh, went into practice with uh, Dr. Richard Grice, who had been a longstanding physician in the community. And, and Dr. Grice had been chief of surgery at HCA Greenview Hospital. And, um, I followed his footsteps, and after uh, he had retired, I became chief of surgery there as well. And back at the time, uh, HCA, as you know, now is the biggest, I think, hospital chain in the world, certainly the country. Uh, but back then, it was just an idea at the kitchen table of, Fr of the Frist family. And uh, so HCA Greenview was one of their flagship hospitals. And so, you know, it was uh, it was a good-sized hospital, very strong in the community, and uh, 
I was asked to serve as chief of surgery there, which I, I consider to be a great honor, and, and I did so. And uh, it's one of those things where uh, you have a lot of administrative duties as well as your operational uh, day-by-day surgeries and things like that. So it kept, it kept me pretty busy for quite a long time. Now, surgery, there are so many different types. There are so many different types of um, specialties, if you will. Um, I have some young people who I used to coach in soccer and stuff like that who today are amazing. Well, let's take one in particular, an amazing orthopedic surgeon. And uh, his practice has grown substantially, and he's a big deal in town. Um, and I can name others that in their specialties. Now, how did you go about developing what your specialty was? Well, I, I had a strong interest in um, I had a strong interest in plastic surgery, uh, and plastic surgery is. A lot of people think it's just cosmetic, but, yeah, yeah. Plastic, but plastic surgery, especially during the residency program, is, is very tough because you, know, you deal with uh, a lot of the, uh, the really bad car wrecks with facial injuries and burns and trauma, right. that sort of thing. Uh, but I was also interested in general vascular. I, I wanted just to have a practice that, that I felt like would be most impactful for me. And so I chose general vascular, but I had a heavy emphasis on plastic surgery because I wanted to make, uh, I wanted to make my wounds uh, heal beautifully, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think there's, there's a fine art to that as well. So I had, I had the best of both worlds and a lot of training. So I had a lot of plastic surgery as well as general vascular, and I chose the latter just because I felt like those were the sickest patients that needed the most help. And in my practice, usually if you saw me, it wasn't a very good sign because that meant you were either very seriously injured and or ill. And that's what my practice consisted of. It was uh, it was mainly uh, of the latter mostly cancer patients and especially breast cancer. So I had a heavy, heavy emphasis on uh, cancer patient care. My, uh, my mom had ovarian cancer, and uh, thankfully she survived that. She passed away a couple of years ago, but she was 90 years old. But she had ovarian cancer at the time. And uh, my dad recently had cancer just a few years ago, colon cancer, but he survived that just fine. I had two uncles who had cancer that did not survive and a very, very significant number of my patients had cancer. So obviously it's one of the most dramatic illnesses we face as human beings and, and uh, they need the most help I thought. And I felt like a strong calling, if you will, to try to, uh, to make those patients lives better. And uh, so that's why I chose what I chose. And to be chief of surgery, you kind of oversee everything, even neurosurgery, OBGYN, orthopedic surgery. So I kind of had a background in all of it. And so being a general vascular surgeon helped me in that role, specifically because I did have a basic knowledge of each kind of surgery, even though I didn't. I did about everything except hysterectomies and bones, mm-hmm. uh, you know. So I had a good background to, to become chief of surgery, and that's why I chose general vascular. Now, um, I think my audience is aware that my wife had breast cancer. It's been about 20 years ago. And then a few years back, and then we had regular follow-ups up at Ohio State at the James Cancer Center. But a couple years ago, they decided that she had, um, uh, the cancer had metastasized, that's the word I think, 
and yes, now she, she has bone cancer. And um, so we're up there uh, once a month for sure. But uh, every other month, it's a little more of an appointment than the opposite month. And um, we are very fortunate to have here in Athens and at Columbus um, the expertise that exists there. And down in your area, the HC, uh, what, what's it called again? Well, it was the Hospital Corporation of America, HCA Greenview Hospital. Yeah, that's uh, an amazing operation as well. What, um, you know, I had, I came across a story this morning, and I brought it in here, and it's only one sentence long. Um, It says, surgeons in New York attached a pig's kidney to a human patient, fueling hopes that animals could help solve the shortage of life-saving organs. This happened in the last 24 hours. Had you heard this yet? I read the headlines. Okay. I read, I read the headlines, and, you know, there's no doubt that, that uh, they serve a purpose, and it may seem cruel at times but you know we had dog labs in in medical school where we would perform surgeries on on dogs and you know you got to start somewhere mm-hmm. and you know and the thing about this for surgeons you've got to you've just got to train yourself or, or uh, you know and be trained i think you have to have i think you have to have that talent in you if you will and then it has to be expressed in the fact that that for me surgery always seemed uh, relatively easy. I never struggled with it, uh, but there's there's such an art uh, as well as a science to it. I know we've all heard the term art and science of medicine, but just to know where the next stitch should be. Uh, especially when you're doing something as fine as what you're talking about there, when you're talking about attaching a kidney. And, you know, when you're dealing when, with blood vessels and you're using suture the size of human hair and you're yes. using yes. Uh, microscopes uh, for glass lenses that, you know, that magnify things five times so you can see just the, even just the tiniest millimeter makes a difference. And, and so those are the kinds of things that you learn along the way. And, um, you know, that I just think that is, is so important because I would always tell my patients, uh, I, I don't care whether it was an abdominal aortic aneurysm or I was taken off a mole, I, I would tell them, look, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you the perfect operation. I'm going to give you my very best every single time and i think that's what we we owe people we we owe our best every single time even if we're not feeling our best or not having a good day we owe it to that patient and that patient's family to give them the very best every single time and that's what i did when i practiced surgery and i I just feel like that that is something that we must do we must dedicate ourselves as surgeons to do that well, I don't know why I'm telling this story, but um, about 24 hours ago, I caught a cold. I haven't had a cold in three or four, maybe five years, but my wife instantly recognized it, and my voice is a little bit different today than normal. Scott noticed it. Um and I'm treating myself, and I'm, I'm you know, fully vaccinated on the uh, COVID scene and flu and all those things that you're supposed to do. Um, but, again, I couldn't tell Scott, you got to do this show for me this morning. I said, i got to come in here. This is, this is family. This, only, you know, only you and I can do this. And... So, you know, I'm going to get the mail after the show and then probably go home and work from home. 
but um, but a lot of people are doing that these days. S- Steve, let's let's talk about this. Um, talk about a story. Obviously, HIPAA is involved. You can't name names. Don't want to na- name names. It doesn't matter. But talk about a few successes, failure stories that you've gone through that just um, hang with you years later. Well, one in particular um, was a woman who had had a back surgery. And during her surgery, uh, there had been, um, let's call it maybe, well, it was a complication. And what had happened was, was that some way, somehow, there had been a small hole placed in the vena cava, which is the body's largest vein. Okay. And it and it had it had merged with the aorta, which is the uh, largest artery in the body. Hmm. And so what what she had was an aortocaval fistula. And so that means there was a mix of arterial and venous blood. Right. And what was incredible that so all of her veins had pulsatile blood flow. So she came in and uh, there's a sound that's called a brewery. When you listen to it, it, it's an abnormal sound showing that there, there's something wrong with the flow of blood in that vessel. And she had like a total body brewery and her all of her veins were pulsatile. And it was like one of the most amazing physical exams I've ever seen in my life. And I did an arteriogram. And, uh, you know, the surgeon that sent her to me, uh, he said, like, you know, you, you probably will want to send this on to somewhere else, but uh, I wanted to give you a first crack at it. And, and I never had that attitude of just going, like, I'm going to send that somewhere else because, you know, I, I felt so good about my own abilities as a surgeon. I said, why send it somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't mean to be arrogant, but, you know, you have to have a, a confidence, confidence about you. you as a, you know, if, you know, if you don't have confidence in your own ability as a surgeon, then you're in trouble. And uh, But I remember doing the arteriogram on this woman, and her entire blood vascular system, it looked like the head of Medusa. It was like these veins and arteries just going everywhere Mm. and so what i had to do was go in and uh very carefully you didn't want to you didn't want to nick anything at all so i mean you had to be so precise with this surgery i'll never forget it's the biggest case i've ever done in my life and you had to go clamp the aorta above and below then you had to separate that you know that fistula uh, repair the aorta and then do a bypass down to the rest of her body with a graft. And so that immediately took away the uh, arterial blood that was going into her veins because eventually what was going to happen, she was going to die from heart failure because, that you know, having all this unoxygenated blood flowing yeah. everywhere, and sure. it was an absolute disaster. But that case went well. How long? And I'll never. How how long had she been dealing with that? Do you know, roughly? She had been dealing with that for a number of months. Okay. And finally, she got to the point where she noticed herself that she was feeling more tired, weak, and uh, just was was uh, having difficulty and struggling in day to day activity. And she never really knew what was wrong, but she knew something was wrong. And, you know, people just don't like going to the doctors, especially after she'd already recovered from this back surgery. She'd had a hard time with that. She she was uh, overweight, obese, diabetic, and a smoker. So throw that on top of the problem, and you kind of see what the daily life of a surgeon was like because you never really got to operate on a healthy patient, if you will. Like, no one just had one single problem it seemed like everybody had some sort of comorbid disease that you had to work around and that's that's one thing that made the job even tougher 
but you know she was way overweight she smoked she was a diabetic and then she had this life-threatening problem but it was the biggest case i'd ever done and uh you know so so how many how many hours at the table on that procedure it wasn't as bad as what you thought it was uh probably around around three hours or so somewhere along in there and uh one of the other cases that that I do remember that sticks out in my mind, and uh, it was when I was chief resident, and I was doing a uh, an abdominal aortic aneurysm surgery. And that's a ballooning out of the aorta. It's a weakening of the wall of the aorta, and if it and if it ruptures, well, yep. it, it's got a high death rate. Right. And, uh, but I did this surgery. And we used to call things like skin to skin, like how long did it take you skin to skin? Like what you were talking about, how long did it take you during the operation? Skin meaning opening the skin to skin being closing the skin. Got it. And I I did this abdominal aortic aneurysm, uh, and it was maybe about an hour to an hour and a half skin to skin. I mean, it the operation, it, it truly was. It just was a perfect operation. Wow! And and my uh, my attending, you know, the surgeon that was over me at the time, he just said, you know, that was a uh, that was just just perfectly done. And I just said, thank you very much, and I appreciate your your commentary. And and then you know, so the patient and the patient was relatively young; he was in the late fifties, something like that. And then that night, it was, it was about 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, I got a phone call saying, like, you know, you, you need to come to the intensive care unit because this patient is crashing. Uh-oh. And, and uh, so I went in, and his blood pressure was so uncontrollably high. They were doing everything possible to, to bring that blood pressure down. But they just couldn't do it. They were giving him every drug known to man, and uh, the blood pressure was like a 400 kind of range. It was just, it was just this malignant hypertension post-op. And then, like all of a sudden, uh, you know, his blood pressure just about shoots to zero. And what had happened was that the blood pressure had gotten so high, it ruptured the suture line, mm-hmm. and it just absolutely. His aorta just exploded, and he ended up dying in the intensive care unit. And I remember how tough a walk back that was because after the surgery, I went to the family and said, you know, everything just went as well as you could could possibly expect. It took us no time to get in and out. So they certainly weren't expecting uh, what happened. No, no. And so uh, that night, you know, I had to go, uh, had to call the family and, of and notify them of, of his death. And, uh, that was, uh, that was a, something I still remember that was decades ago. Of course. So those, those kinds of things, uh, stick with you. You just never forget it because, well, uh, the thing about it is you as a human being, you know, you can do the, just the absolute perfect operation and then still not have a good outcome. And that's what happened. And, you know, one of the things you have to tell tell patients, especially on an operation like that, you know, you sit down beforehand and you say, look, you know, risk or bleeding, infection, death, and on and on and on. And, and so you, you have to go through all that. And it's called informed consent because you have to tell the family, like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this operation just like it's supposed to be done. But even when I do that, uh, there are still things that can go wrong, and most of the time they don't. Right. But this case, they did. But it, it was uh, the dichotomy of it, if you will. It was just the, the op- you know, some of these operations can be really hairy. They can be really tough operations. But this, this operation was essentially a walk in the park, piece of cake kind of thing. And so you expect, like, well, I think this guy's going to do great. I think he'll be in an intensive care unit maybe a day or two. And he'll yet. be transferred out and go home. But then he's dead that, that night. Yeah. So one of those things that you never forget. Of course.
Let's uh, talk a little bit about your own health. Um, I understood secondhand, I think, that you're having a vision issue. Is this correct? Yes, it was. Um, I was 48 years old, and uh, and, uh, and forgive me, Steve. How that, old are you now? I am 64. Okay. Uh, yeah, just just turned 64 in August, and uh, so I noticed the vision change. And, uh, you know, it was one of those things where I felt like I needed a new prescription because I was nearsighted and I hadn't had a prescription change in a number of years. I felt like, well, you know, I'm in my 40s. And and at the time, you're like, oh, my God, you know, I'm almost 50 years old. Mm. Uh, I just like I, I am really getting to be an old man here. Mm. And uh, so, you know, I went to the doctor. And uh, they had told me, you know, uh, you have borderline pressures, that sort of thing. We'll just kind of keep an eye on you. Really no big deal. Uh, you know, and, just, and they did a prescription change, and things seemed like they were better. Then, you know, as time started passing by, I was going like, you know, this is getting worse. And uh, went back to the doctor, and then they sent me to Vanderbilt uh, glaucoma, specialist because I was diagnosed with glaucoma hmm. and they said it was uh, you know it was uh, one of those things where I, again you'll never forget it especially when it's you because you know doctors as we say we don't make the best patients in the world and uh, I went to see this doctor in uh, Vanderbilt and he said you know you are going blind hmm. and if we don't do something fast to bring these pressures down I don't think I can save your vision. And your your world kind of stops. It's one of those weird things where, you know, you feel like all of a sudden everything's in slow motion and the world's in black and white and you're not mm. believing what you just heard. Right. And, you know, you, you feel like you're given this wonderful talent to make a difference in people's lives and then, like, all of a sudden it's going to be taken away from you. So I had to have, uh, I had to have rather urgent uh, eye surgery on both eyes uh, to, to save my vision. How has that gone? Uh, it, it's gone very well. Uh, you know, then they, they put you on different. I take three sets of eye drops a day. Mm-hmm. And there, at one time, there was, a, there was more of a problem. A little bit, about a year or so later down the line, uh, I started having more problems seeing and that sort of thing. And they recommended uh, a certain kind of surgery that I, I didn't agree with uh, because glaucoma is a multifactorial disease, if you will. My mom had it. My grandmother had it. They got diagnosed at age 70-something. I got diagnosed at age 48. And mine was very virulent, very, very malignant, if you will. And... Um, so they, they wanted to do this certain surgery on me, and I, I didn't agree with it. And uh, by the way, the, the first, this is probably a bad story to tell, but hey, you know, this is all about the truth. But uh, And it's not to set an example, but the, the doctor told me, he said, look, uh, we're going to treat you, and then, uh, you know, but I fear that you have a, I want to do a CT scan on your head. I want to put you through this big workup because they thought I had a brain tumor mm. that was producing this problem. Okay. And I just said, look, uh, you know, I'm not going to go through all that. I, I'm not going to put myself, my family all through that. I said, I'll make a deal with you. Make an appointment in six months. And if, if I show up, uh, I was right. If I don't show up, you were right. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, like, you sure you want to do that? And I said, yeah. I said, I, you know, if I've got a malignant brain tumor that's, that's cutting off my vision that fast, there's nothing that anybody's going to do. Yeah. And, I, I, you know, I'm just going to go on and, and live my life and, and, until it ends. And, uh, but thankfully, it was not a malignant brain tumor. Uh, and, uh, well, but I ended, up, uh, I ended up being my own advocate. I had, a, I had a second slit laser surgery, and they said, like, you know, we, we normally don't do that. And I said, well, you love to write papers here at Vanderbilt, don't you? So go ahead and do it. And let's see what happened. And, 
and thankfully they did the second surgery. So I have had two surgeries on both eyes, and it's restored my uh, my vision is stable. It's one of those diseases. It's really a terrible disease because it's insidious. You, you know, you, it's very subtle, yeah. and you don't know you don't know what's going on. But then, like all of a sudden, you know, you've got ninety percent of your optic nerve destroyed, and um, so you can't get better. You can only get worse or stay stable. And thankfully, I stayed stable. But uh, you know, I was working on another project, which we can get into mm. about that same time. And it's kind of like my dad says. Let me just uh, let me just interrupt to say we've got about seven minutes remaining, and I want to cover a couple other things yet. And so, (laughs) excuse me. Um, Did it affect your surgical work, your eyesight? Yeah, I I ended up retiring because um, number one, I felt like it was one of those things where I could possibly damage a patient right. due to my vision. Right. So I just said, I can't do this anymore. Plus, you know, I, I talked with my malpractice insurance people and they just said like, look, we would have trouble covering this and that sort of thing. So I, uh, I just retired. I felt like it was one of those things. It was, it was devastating in a way, but I had been working on this food project for that, uh, that I'd started uh-huh. And then I devoted the rest of my time to that. Let me move to that now. In Athens, Ohio, we have a thing called the CHIP Project. That's the Complete Health Improvement uh, Project. And um, I I was in class 28, my wife and I. And one of their goals would be they'd love it if uh, uh, people taking the course became vegan or vegetarian. But... They, they realize that's not completely realistic. So they teach you all about food and the good things and the bad things and all of that sort of thing. And there's uh, once, you're, once you've taken the course, you're engaged in all sorts of um, social meals where different people prepare their favorite recipes and you get together in the community center or somewhere. Now, with cancer patients, you became particularly aware of the fact that certain things in, contained in food, I'll, let's say protein, for example, um, was very beneficial. And then other things were not fit beneficial to cure. And so starting on this, again, we have five minutes now. Um, the development of Steve, Dr. Steve's snacks. Tell us about well, that. Wh- well, one of the things that, that I had seen, like my mom, uh, all my patients, one of the things they had in common was protein calorie malnutrition, or called PCM. And protein calorie malnutrition is very prominent in cancer patients. About 80 to 85% of cancer patients, one of the first part of their diagnosis is weight loss. And so loss of lean body muscle mass and protein calorie malnutrition are very, very prominent in cancer patient lives. And it leads to increased morbidity, mortality, complications, length of stay, and hospital readmissions. Protein calorie malnutrition kills, and it's uh, implicated in about 300,000 cancer patient deaths per year. That is a conservative estimate. We've all seen how patients become skeletonized versions of themselves, and it's horrible to watch. And uh, most patients, the only thing they were offered a lot of times were liquid forms of nutrition. And that just does not do well many times because in patients, your GI tract or gastrointestinal tract is compromised by the disease itself, pain, pain medication, surgery, radiation, all those things work against you. And you're still secreting fluids in your GI tract. And then when you add volume of liquids, 
you normally just throw that up. Mm. And one of the things that, that we need to understand is that protein calorie malnutrition is the most common secondary diagnosis in cancer patients. It's not pneumonia. It's not wound infection, urinary tract infection. It's protein calorie malnutrition. So I uh, dedicated the last decade plus of my life to develop a food product called Dr. Steve's Nutrisnacks, and we've tested it in cancer clinics all over the country. Very successful. It's like a it's kind of like a, a, a puffed protein product, and it's made in French toast flavor and pizza flavored, and it's, um, it's a plant protein. It's uh, no cholesterol, no trans fat. It's gluten-free and made with non-GMO soy. And so we're given, if nothing else, we're given cancer patients a choice of protein they never had before, and knock on wood, We've tested this in cancer patient settings all over this country, and not one patient has been sick eating it. So we're, we're able to give them the protein they need uh, to tolerate both. You, you have to survive your disease, but you also have to survive your treatment. Your treatment can be very bad. Yes. And so we wanted to give patients something to eat. and. Also, quality of life is a huge issue, and not being able to eat solid food destroys a patient's quality of life, and it hurts the family to, to not being able to see their patient, uh, their loved one, being able to eat solid food. So this is one of the things that I've dedicated my life to. I mean, this, this food is not just for cancer patients. Uh, you know, like my son Jack played pro baseball, and they have a need for protein too, especially while traveling. But but nothing's more dramatic than cancer patients, and a lot of them travel to get their chemo and radiation, and we made it in a convenience one-ounce bag. The French toast flavor has 13 grams of protein per one-ounce bag, and the pizza has 15 grams of protein per one-ounce bag. So we want to help you meet your increased protein needs and some some of these cancer patients their protein needs are two or three times greater than normal due to their treatment and their disease we're we're nearly out of time let's give a website for dr steve's snacks and that's spelled a little differently s-n-a-x.com yes it is dr steve's like it is www dot dr Steve's, S-T-E-V-E-S, Nutra, N-U-T-R-I, Snacks, N-A-X dot com. Dr. Steve's Nutrasnacks.com. We got five we seconds. Only, <laughs> we, okay. We offer not only the food. In our 72nd year of serving Southeast well. Ohio, AM 970 and 97.1 FM. W-A-T-H-F-N. Folks, I'll repeat some of this tomorrow. This is CBS News on the Hour, presented by Indeed.com. I'm Deborah Rodriguez. The White House has a plan in place for vaccinating children aged 5 to 11 against COVID. Response coordinator Jeff Zients. We know millions of parents have been waiting for COVID-19 vaccine for kids in this age group. And should the FDA and CDC authorize the vaccine, we will be ready to get shots in arms. Correspondent Stephen Portnoy. The plan still depends on formal approval from the CDC's advisory panel, which won't meet for two more weeks. But the White House says it's preparing now to distribute smaller needles and pediatric formulations of the vaccine. If approved for children ages 5 to 11, the Pfizer shot could be given to kids at pediatricians' offices, local pharmacies, and even local schools. New York Mayor Bill de Blasio's just announced a requirement for public workers to get vaccinated. WCBS Radio's Marla Diamond. Health Commissioner Dr. Dave Choksi will sign an order today to formalize the mandate, which will immediately apply to about 160,500 unvaccinated city workers. The police union is threatening legal action. Today is the deadline for city workers in Los Angeles to get vaccinated. Those who haven't may get extra time by getting tested twice a week and having the $130 deducted from their paychecks. COVID cases in Russia have shot up to their highest number since the start of the pandemic. President Putin is ordering workers to stay home from work for a week later this month to give them time to get vaccinated. 
A report from the U.N. says about 95 percent of people in Afghanistan don't have enough to eat. Correspondent Imtiaz Tayab is in Kabul. Hunger and poverty have long stalked Afghanistan's children. But since the Taliban seized power two months ago, the nation is spiraling into a deep humanitarian crisis. According to the United Nations, if urgent humanitarian assistance doesn't come soon, more than a million children will